in minutes. The final 2020 presidential debate. Election conference. Come on, 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 come on. DJDP. The Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 135. Come on. Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. The second and final 2020 presidential debate. President Trump tries to pull it together at the advice of his advisors and lets Joe Biden speak a little bit more. Joe Biden continues his tug-of-war game with the policy of his own party on the stage and tries to pull the agenda back to center-left. That's oversimplifying it, but topic by topic, I will break down the responses of each candidate if you missed the debate. And if you didn't, you'll be subject to the subjective monologue during today's breakdown of the final 2020 presidential debate here on on episode number 135 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now from Chicago, here's Jay Doherty. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 135. It's 5 p.m. Uh, in Chicago, Sunday, November 1st. Thank you very much for being here. There's a lot to talk about, of course. We are in the crunch time, the final minute, the last two days before the presidential election uh, here. And there is a lot going on. And really, I, I wanted to dedicate this entire episode uh, to analyzing and breaking down the final presidential debate. And people say, well, the debates don't matter. They're screaming matches. You know, they, what's even the point of, of uh, talking about them? And the reason that I like to talk about them is because whether Americans take advantage of the opportunity to actually see the candidates talk on a public stage, many of them did the last time, not as many did this time uh, in terms of ratings numbers. Um, but I think debates are really undervalued in the in how crucial they are to a democracy because debates you really get a sense obviously of the flavor of the campaigns not everyone reads the the policies of the campaigns so you get a flavor of the candidates you understand what they're pushing for their personality uh, which is something very important and I think debates are a big indicator of debate performance and uh, poll numbers are the two biggest indicators of success or potential success in a presidential election. Now, many Americans did not take advantage of that opportunity to tune into the most recent debate, and that's really why I'm talking about this entire thing, because I want to break down the debate for people who have, who have not seen the debate. So, we're going to break down the entire third presidential, or second, I guess, but uh, it was scheduled to be the third before the, the middle one got canceled, but this was the final presidential debate before the election. 63 million people, approximately, tuned in to watch Thursday night's presidential debate, for comparison's sake, 73 million people watched the first one. The, the figures in 2016 were actually higher. The third and final presidential debate between Trump and Hillary averaged 71.6 million viewers. And that was, of course, the final one. This one only had 63 million viewers. Perhaps the clown show <laughs> the previous night, which we talked about in episode number 134 uh, of the Jay Doherty podcast, turned people off from actually listening. They sort of made their decisions. So that's part of the whole thing here. People made their decisions before they even, before they even uh, tuned into the debates. There are very, there's a very, very, very few portion of undecided voters in this election, and I think that's very clear. Um, but there are some, and that is what each candidate is trying to do right now. Most, I mean, I think almost all of the undecideds are in are independents or they're center left or center right. There's a lot of center rights that are going for Biden because they can't stand the rhetoric of Trump. That's according to the polls. I think that is a reason. I've, I've heard people that I know that are center right. They're going for Biden because 
for a lot of different reasons, religious values, um, you know, just moral character, etc. Um, but there's other reasons that uh, center-left are going for Trump, particularly foreign policy and, and other things. So there's a lot of, it, it, there's a wide range of reasons why uh, a, a Trump, a traditionally Republican may go for Biden, and a traditional Democrat may go for uh, Trump. And I think really, just from my observations, it's more leaning towards Biden from the polls, from the debate performance, from everything. It looks like it's leaning towards Biden. Uh, and I think, as I said before, the debates are a fantastic indicator of where things are going. So I'm going to talk about that, and then we'll go into poll numbers um, and talk about generally the race as a whole and why you should vote. It is If you can vote, unlike me, who cannot vote because of my age, uh, I highly recommend that you go out and vote. It is a crucial part as your of your citizenship. Um, as an American. So please do vote. It is a very good thing to do. All right, let's get into the, to the debate coverage. Okay, so coronavirus was the first topic that was discussed on the third and final presidential debate. Trump, during his entire coronavirus performance, tended to defer the blame off of himself. That was his first thing. He said that it's all completely other countries. Other countries are experiencing the exact same problem. Um, and, you know, we should be compared to them. The problem with Trump's answer in that section of the debate was that it did not address for a strategy for the here and the now. People are dying from COVID-19. People are getting sick from COVID-19. People are losing their jobs because of COVID-19. And it would be a very good platform for the president to address his here and now strategy for coronavirus. His response in the debate should have been more straightforward, should have addressed the good things that his, his, his administration has done. There are a high number of good things that his administration has done policy-wise, not rhetoric, but policy-wise, that have really helped, probably saved lots of people from dying or getting sick. One of the best things Trump did uh, in his debate, or his administration, sorry, not in the debate, but uh, one of the best things Trump's administration has done in handling the coronavirus is that he facilitated pretty good bipartisan relationships with very, very li liberal governors, like uh, New York's Andrew Cuomo, California's Gavin Newsom. They're, those are dense populations, high cases just naturally, just like there would be in any other outbreak. And Trump and Trump's collaboration with Cuomo and Newsom probably saved lots of lives. And Trump should have brought that up. He should have acknowledged that or at least hit hard on that. Because one of the most effective strategies that I see debaters use uh, in any debate, not just presidential debates, is when they prove that even the opposite side of their debate or their argument has agreed with them and has been, or at least has been willing to work with their ideas in the past. Trump could have reminded the public of when Andrew Cuomo publicly praised his administration's efforts to help their state as much as possible. That was that would be a fantastic place to do it. You could say that even Democrats are supporting my, or have supported my efforts and my, um, and successes that they've had for their states as a result of my administration's access. I actually did an episode back in April called Helpful Compliance, which you can listen to at j-doherty.com, where I talked about how the federal government worked well with states in their distribution of personal protective equipment. Trump could have easily defended his track record with coronavirus and pointed to his, his record of dealing with states and governors who are in charge of states with dense populations and pointed to countless clips of Andrew Cuomo, a uh, very liberal governor, uh, praising Trump. In fact, there's one on when Andrew Cuomo was on Howard Stern back in April, praising Trump. And strategically, right now, as a Republican running for president against a Democrat, showing that a Democrat has acknowledged you, especially at this time in the world. You know, showing that a Democrat as a Republican has praised you is a very, 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 very powerful thing. And just showing that a Democrat has acknowledged you once did good for them, 
uh, is a very powerful thing because we are in such politically polarizing times these days. Here is Andrew Cuomo and Howard Stern back in late April. Trump could have easily pointed to this as evidence for uh, Democrat support just to work in a bipartisan manner uh, during times of crisis. I don't talk to Trump every single day, but I do talk to him when I need to talk to him, which is at least several times a week. And for those people who don't know the backdrop here, there's been no governor in the nation who's fought as much with Trump as I have. And that's OK. We're both New Yorkers. We speak our mind. And if we uh, have to disagree, we disagree. But during this, I said from the get-go, this is not about politics. It's not about personalities. We have to be better than that for the jobs we do. And I put my hand out in partnership to work with you, and we'll call it straight. And if you do the right thing by New York, I'll say it. And if you don't, I'll say it. Since then, Howard, he has been good in delivering for New York. He has delivered for New York. The Army Corps of Engineers... We built thousands of beds. He sent the uh, Navy ship Comfort to New York. He has delivered for New York. It's not I, perfect, I, you know. It's a, what relationship is perfect. And look, there are incidents even during this where he has taken shots at me and I have taken shots at him. Not gratuitous shots, but by and large, it has worked. Okay, so that was, Howard's, or that was uh, Andrew Cuomo on Howard Stern's radio show in late April. He, he's, he listed out his accomplishments. He said Trump has delivered for New York. New York is one of the most densely populated cities in the entire United States, uh, or states in the entire United States, particularly New York City. There is no reason why Trump could have not cited that, and there are even other clips that I have in the archives here of Cuomo praising Trump, Newsom praising Trump, lots of different things Trump could have pointed to, and uh, that should have been something that I think is sort of an easy ballpark or sorry, not uh, ballpark, like home run shot for Trump to just hit out of the park. Um, and, and Trump really should have reiterated the successful collaboration that he's had with Cuomo past April. And, and, and you know, this is crunch time right now. Uh, but instead of sort of pushing it off and, and listing his accomplishments with others, he made it about himself and how America is not really the only one dealing with this problem, which not too strong of an argument. Uh, however, in the response overall, I think the best thing that Trump did uh, was point out his military operation, Warp Speed, to develop and distribute vaccines. Um, that's really because that's something that's happening in the here and now. That's why I think it was one of the good things. It's happening in the here and now where public government and private corporations are working together under the umbrella of his, of his administration to get the vaccine done. Um, yeah, so that, that's a good thing that he's done, uh, and, and working to get a vaccine done, as we're going to talk about in a second, is also a fantastic thing that, that his administration is doing. He could have put more emphasis on that, I thought, uh, despite him actually first saying that he doesn't believe in his infinite medical knowledge that a vaccine uh, will not be necessary. He said that the coronavirus will go away back in early May. Uh, that's what Trump said, so I thought it was funny how he was sort of he did praise his administration's efforts for, for a vaccine on the debate. I think he could have done it more just strategically in a debate, you know, move. Um, but I thought it was funny how back in early May, Trump said this. This is going to go away without a vaccine. It's going to go away, and it's, uh, we're not going to see it again, hopefully, after a period of time. You may have some, some flare-ups, and I guess, you know, I would expect that. Sometime in the fall, you'll have... Flare-ups, maybe. Okay, so he's obviously a doctor. He knows everything about coronavirus. <laughs> it's not. It's going to go away without a vaccine. There'll be some flare-ups in fall. And then hundreds of thousands of people went on to die uh, as a result of coronavirus. So clearly we can trust him. He's, he's in his infinite medical knowledge. He is Dr. Donald Trump. 
Uh, also, Trump misled the public later on in the debate, similar to what I just played, but this was in the actual debate, not in, in April. And I, uh, or was that in May? Yeah, that was in early May. And I, I don't, I think it's ridiculous for Trump, like as the president of the United States, to say that a vaccine will not be necessary when now it is. But I, I can't completely knock him because uh, no one knew, including the top medical professionals, like serious medical professionals, professionals, no one knew how big this was going to get. No one knew the nature of it really at that time. So I can't knock him completely. I just think it's funny how he, he acted so confidently <laughs> in his in his medical knowledge that uh, that a vaccine will not be necessary, even though uh, that's the main priority of his his administration right now. But I, or later on in the debate, Trump misled the public by actually saying that there is a vaccine that is currently ready. He, he said he seemed to insinuate that in the debate. Here's a very short clip of him saying that there's a vaccine that's coming and it's ready. We have a vaccine that's coming. It's ready. OK, remember the clip of Trump saying that we have a vaccine that's coming. It's ready. So that's actually false. But he takes back the statement like two minutes and 30 seconds later without acknowledging that he took back the statement. So that's a lie from Trump. Anyway, to fact check that statement, which is this almost goes into uh, more of the vaccine development and coronavirus as a completely separate issue, uh, which is equally important, as important as the presidential debate, if not more, actually drastically more because lives are at stake in that. Uh, but anyway, the FDA has not approved a vaccine for public use. So Trump's statement that it's here and it's ready is completely false. And there's also been no indication from any public health officials that a vaccine has been authorized or is ready for the public. I mean, they're currently they're not, they're not even ready. They're still in trial. There's four U.S. clinical trial vaccines in phase three. Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson are each trying to develop one. Um, AstraZeneca actually paused their trial uh, trials on September 8th because uh, one of their test subjects, I think thou like one of thousands of test subjects, uh, developed an unexplained illness. And then Johnson & Johnson did the same thing for the same reason on October 12th. Um, and both of them never followed up saying if and when they plan to resume. But on the other hand, Pfizer and Moderna are continuing their phase three clinical trials right now. Uh, they have tens of thousands of participants at the moment. Um, but at the same time, there's been little public indication of their progress. And um, the companies didn't, they said that they're not going to be able to apply to the FDA's emergency use program until late November or early December. So in other words, um, you know, when Trump says that we're ready for a vaccine. We have a vaccine that's coming. It's ready. And that it's actually ready. It's not true because according to the public data from both uh, public health officials and from uh, private industry, we are weeks and perhaps months away from completing the development of a vaccine, let alone rolling it out to the public. So then a couple minutes later, um, Kristen Welker, the fabulous moderator, best moderator out of any presidential debate this election, including the vice presidential debate, she asked for further clarification, and that's in my opinion, and I think many people's opinions, <laughs> uh, she asked for further clarification, uh, and the language that Trump uses here gets a little bit iffy and sort of confusing. Here is Kristen Welker asking a question. You also said a vaccine will be coming within weeks? Yes. Is that a guarantee? Is, no, it's is not this... a guarantee, but it will be by the end of the year, but I think it has a good chance. There are two companies, I think, within a matter of weeks, and it will be distributed very quickly. Okay, so remember that, that he said that literally two minutes after he said this. We have a vaccine that's coming. It's ready. Ah, that's funny. Okay, so after the debate, uh, there was a lot of clarification on what Trump said because he was very inconsistent in his statements uh, about coronavirus and a vaccine throughout the debate, um, except for the uh, distribution 
methods, which he seems to be more interested in than the actual development of the vaccine. Uh, and that's probably likely because uh, he has more direct control and probably more knowledge over that, considering it has to do with the military. Uh, and, you know, of course, the Operation Warp Speed. Uh, but anyway, in terms of the actual development of the vaccine, which is the first step, you, you can't distribute anything unless you've developed it. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who is, of course, the U.S.'s director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, went on the BBC and clarified that the completion of a vaccine is ideally going to be in November or December, but that is not going to be the end of the process. The logistical challenge, of course, as I said before, is distributing it to the people who need it and then finding an equitable way to do that. And uh, doing that quickly is even harder. Here's Anthony Fauci on the BBC. We will know whether a vaccine is safe and effective by the end of November, the beginning of December. The question is, once you have a safe and effective vaccine or more than one, how can you get it to the people who need it as quickly as possible? So the amount of doses that will be available in December will not certainly be enough to vaccinate everybody. You'll have to wait several months into 2021. And the reason it won't come until later in 2021, as you heard in that clip, is because um, the Trump administration's uh, or the, the military's Operation Warp Speed needs to come up with a method or a plan to distribute the vaccine to people who really, really need it. And in that same interview, Fauci actually explains uh, why the vaccine will not likely be available to the general public, emphasis on the general public, until the second or third quarter of 2021, because certain people will get it beforehand. But what will happen is that there has been a prioritization set so that individuals such as healthcare workers will very likely get first shot at it, as will then likely people who are in the category of being at an increased risk for complications. That could start by the end of this year, the beginning January, February, March of next year. But when you talk about vaccinating a substantial proportion of the population so that you can have a significant impact on the dynamics of the outbreak, that very likely will not be into the second or third quarter of the year. Okay, so that that's basically the completion of Trump's uh, coverage of the virus. There were a couple other topics that he talked about uh, within the virus, but uh, we talked about Trump for a long time pretty much now on this topic. So let's move on to Biden. Uh, Biden did a lot better than Trump, and the chief reason Biden did a lot better than Trump on this on this issue uh, is because because of the circumstances. Quite frankly, hundreds of thousands of people did not die under the presidential or active public service watch of Joe Biden. So circumstantially, Biden was at a competitive advantage at this question, which is why he was able to use the following pre-planned speech at last night's debate to zoom out from the question of vaccines and look at this issue more broadly. Here's the first thing, the first very pre-rehearsed thing that Joe Biden said in the final debate. 220,000 Americans dead. You hear nothing else I say tonight. Hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm, I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Okay, so that's a really effective thing to say. Uh, it zooms out from the entire debacle about vaccine development and it looks at the big, huge issue uh, completely. And I think... Trump would have probably said the exact same thing if the rules were reversed and Biden was in office and those were the numbers. It was an easy thing to do uh, for Biden. It was really strategically a very good move for Biden to come out of the gate and encourage people to look at Trump's handling of the virus from 30,000 feet when they go to the polls and look up, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of people are dead? How are you going to vote for this person on top of the other flaws that he has? 
I mean, that's a legitimate argument. The other thing that Biden did well uh, was point out some of the many lies that Trump has told to the American public during his handling of the virus. This is the same fellow who told you this is going to end by Easter last time. This is the same fellow who told you that, don't worry, we're going to end this by the summer. We're about to go into a dark winter, a dark winter. And he has no clear plan, and there's no prospect that there's going to be a vaccine available for the majority of the American people before the middle of next year. Okay, so that was actually really good, and it wasn't not factual information. I mean, there were a lot of pretenses to uh, what Biden said. He said there's no prospect of there being uh, of the vaccine being able to, I think, go out to the majority of the American public by the end of the year. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of pretenses to a statement, but it's all true, and those were pre-rehearsed things uh, that, of course, he came in with, but it's a very good point, and he executed those pretty well. I think that just comes from debate experience, of which Biden has a lot more than Trump. Perhaps another pre-written, or at least previously thought outline from Biden, was when, uh, after Trump said this... We're learning to live with it. Biden said this. People are learning to die with it. So Biden did well overall in refuting the notion that he wanted uh, to also shut down everything. And that was a really clever line that he used. People are learning, living to die with it after Trump said we're learning to live with it. Obviously, a pre-written line. He was hoping for <laughs> for uh, Trump to say that, and it would have only worked if Trump said it. Uh, but separately, Biden did really well in refuting the notion that he wanted to shut down everything. And every and he, you know, that's something that a lot of Fox News uh, anchors and Trump and his Fox News community and his Fox News viewers often like to push. Biden said that, no, I am not, like, wanting to shut down everyone. I'm not trying to uh, lock people in their houses. I'm not trying to do any of what you say in terms of, like, completely shutting down the entire country. Biden said that he wants to open up, but he wants to do it strategically. Here he is. We ought to be able to safely open, but would they need resources to open? You need to be able to, for example, if you're going to open a business, have social distancing within the business. You need to have, if you have a restaurant, you need to have plexiglass dividers so people cannot infect one another. You need to be in a position where you can take testing rapidly and know whether a person is, in fact, infected. You need to be able to trace. You need to be able to provide the, all the resources that are needed to do this. And that is not inconsistent with saying that what... We're going to make sure that we open safely. Okay, so that that's sort of what he says, and I, I think uh, that is a very good point. Is you don't you can you can you know two things can be true at the same time uh, with opening with coronavirus. Uh, I think it is ridiculous to shut everything down. I also think it's very foolish to have huge gatherings, maskless and completely uh, open in the public for the majority. Like Amy Coney Barrett's little introduction, <laughs> where I mean people were masked, but everyone was standing completely very very close to each other and. A lot of people ended up getting coronavirus from that. To have the president be doing that, pushing that sort of idea uh, of just gathering in public without masks and sitting crunched into a little rose garden, ridiculous. That, that's just really insane. And uh, Biden says we just have to be strategic. And I think that is a very good thing to say. The reason that there's not as many criticisms of Biden's handling of this uh little uh, of coronavirus as a topic in the debate is because, uh, again, he's at a circumstantial advantage when it comes to coronavirus and Biden is, or sorry, Trump is at a complete disadvantage because all these people got sick, all these people died under his watch, under his responsibility. So that is Trump and Biden and coronavirus. The second topic of the debate was national security. And the first question that was brought up about national security was about a story that had come up the previous day that basically confirmed that both Russia and Iran are working to try and influence the outcome of the election. Uh, that entire story was actually prompted by 
Trump appointee and director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe, who said this uh, on the Wednesday before the debate. We would like to alert the public that we have identified that two foreign actors, Iran and Russia, have taken specific actions to influence public opinion relating to our elections. First, we have confirmed that some voter registration information has been obtained by Iran and separately by Russia. This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy. Okay, so that was what Radcliffe said, and that was the prompt to the first question of the debate. The first answer to that question, unlike the first topic of coronavirus, went to Biden, Joe Biden. So the first opportunity uh, for Joe Biden to address this actually went pretty well. Uh, He seemed to have an obsession with the word sovereignty, as I think he wanted to just challenge the intellect of the American spirit or try and tug on some national and emotional defensive strings that some of his voters may have. But anyway, here was his very straightforward response to that question, which I thought was uh, done pretty well. Again, pre-scripted, but nonetheless done well. I made it clear that any country, no matter who it is, that interferes in American elections will pay a price. They will pay a price. And it's been overwhelmingly clear this election, I won't even get into the last one, this election, that Russia has been involved, China has been involved to some degree, and now we learn that, that, uh, that uh, Iran is involved. They will pay a price if I'm elected. They're interfering with American sovereignty. That's what's going on right now. They're interfering with American sovereignty. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think the president said anything to Putin about it. I don't think he's talking to them a lot. I don't think he said a word. I don't know why he hadn't said a word to Putin about it. And I don't know what he has recently said, if anything, to the Iranians. My guess is he'd probably be more outspoken with regard to the Iranians. Okay. So that was a very st- smart debate strategy, I thought. Uh, you know, he started out uh, and made a point very clear, just organizationally. I, I, you know, uh, there, there was also good content, but I think the real strength in that particular 47-second um, response was the uh, organizational structure of that statement. He went in and made a very clear point about how uh, you know anyone who interferes with elections are going to be punished, and then he supported it and pointed out that our opponent has fa- that his appoint- opponent has failed to make that point. Uh, but the failure on Trump's part is not as simple as one may think, and I'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, a couple seconds later, when uh, Biden got a little bit more hostile, Biden swung back with a pre-planned, hesitant, but very well-thought-out speech about Rudy Giuliani's mysterious offshore dealings. And Rudy Giuliani and, and Biden have a lot of beef within each other. I don't think they're on speaking terms, but uh, they, you know, I think this whole Hunter Biden stuff that's been coming out recently, uh, which I'm also going to talk about because that is also a matter of national security that Trump brings up, uh, is something that uh, rooted from Giuliani and his work overseas. There, that is, it's not confirmed publicly, but I think a lot of the speculation is rooted in, in how even Hunter Biden came up as an issue in this election came from the one man himself, Rudolph Giuliani. So here's uh, what Biden had to say about uh, how Rudy Giuliani is the man that you should be concerned about when it comes to Trump and national security. His own own national security advisor told him that what is happening with his buddy, well, I won't, I shouldn't, well, I will. His buddy, Rudy Giuliani, he's being used as a Russian pawn. He's being fed information that is Russian, that is not true. And then what happens? Nothing happens. And then you find out that everything that's going on here 
about Russia is wanting to make sure that I do not get elected the next president of the United States because they know I know them and they know me. Any country that interferes with us will, in fact, pay a price because they're affecting our sovereignty. Okay, so that was a good response and obviously, again, pre-written out. But uh, that was sort of the end of Trump's, or sorry, of Biden's uh, remarks with national security. He sort of continued on that same uh, idea that we're going to be tough on anyone who uh, interferes with our elections. Trump, by contrast, doesn't know anything about the policy he pushes. And that's just a general statement. I've said that for a while. I think many conservatives who support Trump actually agree with that. Trump's policy, as and I've said this before, is good, traditional, conservative, moderate policy. His rhetoric, the way he acts, the way he talks, the way he is as a moral being is just absolutely horrible. It tarnishes his reputation, tar- tarnishes his administration's reputation. He's a not a thought leader. He is not. He's just a he's just a horrible person overall. I would think, uh, and I, I would make that strong argument. But the policy he pushes, you know, in terms of national security uh, and really foreign policy overall, is pretty conservative, pretty moderate, and it's all the stuff that his advisors write. He's been pretty tough on Russia in policy, not in rhetoric, but in policy. Uh, and that is something that he could have cited more. He did talk about it pretty briefly, but he, in his response, and we're moving on, of course, if you haven't noticed, to Trump's response on national security, um, Trump could have cited that he put tons of, he, he did briefly mention it, but he could have went on a greater extent about how relative to the Obama administration, which of course the notable employee is his opponent, Joe Biden, <laughs> um, he could have pointed out that he put a bunch of sanctions on Russia, like tons of sanctions every day on Russia. He gave tons of deadly weapons to the people of Ukraine, so they were armed against Russia at the likely advice of his advisors, so as to not repeat a similar annexation of Crimea that occurred in the, under the Obama administration, of which, again, Joe Biden worked for as vice president. Um, and he could have he could have cited that and gone into detail about not only— he did talk about those, those uh, things, you know, preliminarily— uh, and it's sort of like, it's like three minutes of him, t- well, it's it's a complicated way to get clips of that because there was a lot of banter back and forth, but if you want to listen to his specific clips, we'll have the timestamps on the website, j-torty.com, and you'll see that Trump continually talks about um, what he's done with on Russia policy, which is a good debate move because he has been pretty tough on Russia and arguably more tougher in terms of policy, again, on policy, not rhetoric, than the Obama administration was. And when I say Obama, I'm really talking about Joe Biden's past record. Um, and it also, I mean, the, the stuff that he said on the debate last night also contradicts Trump, you know, as a person who, in his past views, um, Trump actually said in 2014, this is what he said about the Crimea, um, the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, even though his policies arguably are very different from what he said back in 2014. Vladimir Putin. Well, he's done an amazing job of taking the mantle, and he's taken it away from the president, and you look at what he's doing. And that is a so euphemism, far. if I've ever heard one. The riots in a country because they're hurting the Russians, okay, we'll go and take it over. And he's really going step by step by step. And you have to give him a lot of credit. Interestingly, on the Miss Universe pageant, we just left Moscow. He could not have been nicer. He was so nice and so everything. But you have to give him credit that what he's doing for that country in terms of their world prestige is very strong. Last thought. Okay, so that's sort of what he said in 2014. Obviously, the policy that his advisors tell him to push is very different, and the talking points he was given for the debate uh, on, th- on Thursday night was very different. 
Uh, and CNN also proudly presents 36 other times that he was soft on Russia. So if you want to go look at that, j doherty.com slash jdpodcast. You'll get a link to that and the 10 pages of show notes that I put together for this episode. The second part of Trump's argument on national security was, of course, the famous, the infamous, the one, the only Hunter Biden. And Trump claimed that it was not only Hunter that was sketchy in his dealings with Russia, which is, of course, more than questionable, but he also said that Biden himself, and by extension the Biden family, made money with Russia, which is a, com- I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or if it's not true. Here's Trump. Joe got three and a half million dollars from Russia, and it came through Putin because he was very friendly with the former mayor of Moscow, and it was the mayor of Moscow's wife, and you got three and a half million dollars. Your family got three and a half million dollars, and, you know, someday you're going to have to explain why did you get three and a half. I never got any money from Russia. I don't get money from Russia. Okay, so Trump is obviously hoping uh, in this situation that Biden's supposed Russia involvement or allegedly gaining money from Russia, which is not true, uh, is going to be the functional equivalent of Hillary's email deletion in 2016, and that's going to hurt him. That's going to be horrible for his campaign. That's sort of the message that he's putting. He, you know, his supporters have cheered lock him up in referencing to Hunter Biden, I think, at rallies. They're trying to, again, very similarly mirror the the idea of Hillary's email deletion and uh, Hunter Biden's involvement in everything as very similar things campaign-wise. The problem is that Hillary actually did delete the emails. And what Trump said about Biden and what happened with his son Hunter uh, is true. And specifically with Hunter, though, there is no connection as of now to Joe Biden, so he cannot make that argument. Uh, The New York Times, in fact-checking the uh, third debate, actually said, or sorry, the final debate, I keep saying the third because it would typically be the third, uh, and if you include the vice vice presidential debate, then it is the third. But the New York Times, in fact-checking the claim that Trump made about Joe Biden getting (laughs) uh, money from Russia, is, quote-unquote, based on an investigative report released last week by Senate Republicans that accused members of Mr. Biden's family of cashing in on his vice presidency. The report claims that Hunter Biden, quote-unquote, had a financial relationship with Elena Berterina, a wealthy uh, Russian businesswoman and the widow of a former mayor of Moscow. The report bases this claim on an unidentified, quote-unquote, confidential document showing that Ms. Baturina transferred $3.5 million in 2014 for a, quote-unquote, consultancy agreement to a bank account associated with a company called Rosemont Seneca Thornton that was associated with Hunter Biden's business partners. Mr. Biden's lawyer has said that he was not a co-founder of Rosemont Seneca Thornton, had no interest in it, and did not have a financial relationship with Ms. Baturina. He did not respond to question... Uh, to a question about whether Mr. Biden was paid by Rosemont Seneca Thornton or did consulting work for Ms. Baturina. Now, there's other, there's lots of other information that talks about whether or not Joe Biden, um, uh, or whether, how, how the Biden family or members of the Biden family have, um, have, uh, have benefited from any Russia involvement. Um, but the, um, what, uh, Trump said about Biden and and this lady Elena or he never mentioned her by name but uh the entire thing that said that where he said Joe got 3.5 million dollars from Russia and it came through Putin because he was very friendly with the former mayor of Moscow and the, it was the mayor of Moscow's wife who gave him 3 million dollars and all that stuff uh it's misleading and the New York Times uh Kenneth Vogel confirms that he's an investigative reporter at the New York Times you can read his quote and the rest of his story Uh, at the New York Times. Anyway, regardless of any of the details of this, it's bad. Hunter Biden's uh, involvement, Joe Biden's potential involvement in this sort of thing, is really, really bad. 
hunter, or any child of a super famous politician should have absolutely no involvement in government. It is just a road to bribery, to nepotism accusations, bribery accusations, tons of different accusations that could come as a result of, you know, nepotism or, or privilege given by, especially by a foreign country in politics. There should be, you know, it just it should just be a rule, uh, maybe not a legal rule, but a a uh, sort of a unspoken rule that no child of a famous public official should have any involvement in government. No surprise, Biden also hit Trump on the tax returns that uh, Trump has refused to release for five years, and I don't know how that has to do anything with national security, but it did come up in this segment, uh, and of course Trump led, or he didn't, I don't think he actually said the line in the debate, but he was very, he might have actually, but he was very uh, clearly insistent that he is going to release the tax returns. He's going to. And the excuse that he hasn't is because of, of course, of his famous line. I'm always audited by the IRS. And I'm on a very continuous audit because there's... They so audit me, audit me, audit me. But I'm being audited now. You never give a tax return when you're being audited. I can't release tax returns when there's an audit. Well, I'm not releasing the tax returns because, as you know, they're under audit. They're under audit. They have been for a long time. They're extremely complex. People wouldn't understand them. People wouldn't understand them. Oh, the superior intellect reigns once again with Donald J. Trump, but that seems to be the company line when it comes to uh, <laughs> to tax and uh, public evasion of giving that tax, and maybe evasion is uh, <laughs> a complicated word to use when it comes to taxes, but he does not like to give up the tax returns to the public, and the company line is that they're under audit. We're 37 minutes into this episode of the Jade Doherty Podcast. It is Sunday, November 1st, 2020. 5.30 p.m. We are listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast on the JD Media Network. We're streaming live to a couple people who are listening now, and um, we're going to take a break for uh, the live stream audience. The podcast break will be edited out, but we will be right back. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast on the JD Media Network. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the Jay Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com. This is Kevin Drum, and you're listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 135, Sunday, November 1st, 2025. 35. Thank you very much for listening. Um, okay, lots of stuff to continue to talk about here within the debate. We're going to move on to the next section of the debate, which of course was the economy. And the first section of the economy, first subsection of the economy was healthcare. This was simple, nothing really new. Trump knocked it out of, you know, Trump just completely knocked Obamacare uh, as a policy as he's done in the past. Um, and I think the really the most concerning thing about Trump right now in terms of policy, which generally his administration can point to as a strength to uh, logical and you know conservatives, um, he he could point to a policy generally on these issues, but he has no policy. There's no health care plan that he has. There's no clear health care plan that he has laid out. Biden, by contrast, contrast has laid out a plan, uh, and a lot of it also builds out of Obamacare. Biden's health care plan is completely. Uh, built off of, you know, the Affordable Care Act, which is also known as Obamacare. And I talked about it last episode. Biden's health care plan is, in my opinion, and, you know, yeah, in my opinion, it's just preferable to Trump's in almost every single way. 
And healthcare is a is a place generally where I'm very sturdily center left, center left, not 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 far left by any means. And I'm rarely far left on anything. I'm always center left or center right on issues uh, because that, that makes me an independent. But anyway, Biden is a complete um, doing doing. I, I think his healthcare plan is is very very. I mean, first of all, it exists, and second of all, it's much better than Trump's. His moderate healthcare plan. Uh, which was, of course, built off the Affordable Care Act, left room for a more moderate hybrid of options, which is, in my opinion, and I talked about this almost word for word last episode, uh, is much better than Trump's, because Trump has a very loosely defined, at best, repealed but not replaced version of the Affordable Care Act. And in short, Biden's plan is best because it gives you options. You can stick with the government or you can pay your own insurance. And freedom in politics comes in the form of options. I am extremely um, proud, and I, I push that notion in almost every single uh, issue that has to come up in world politics. I mean, democracy comes in the form of options. Freedom comes as a result of options, and Biden's plan presents options because it breaks from the socialized alternative that the progressives push, where everyone has to be on a government plan, and also the mostly privatized version that conservatives push, which is equally, perhaps, uh, argued to be worse, um, because, you know, it is. In my opinion, it is not good to have a fully, fully, fully privatized version of health or insurance or really anything. The government should step in in certain issues. For example, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all those things are are socialist policies uh, if you look at them individually. But in the grand scheme of things, they're balanced out by the companies that are currently developing vaccines like AstraZeneca and Pfizer and Moderna and like other pharmaceutical companies like Merck and a bunch of others. I mean, it, it there is a balance and striking a balance with healthcare is the most important thing, which is why Biden saying that you can um, stay, stick with your plan, the plan that you pay for, the plan that your employer pays for, that's great. Or if you don't want to or you can't afford it, go ahead and come to the government and we will help subsidize your healthcare. That's a perfect plan, not saying one or the other, saying that you can do both is the best thing uh, that one can do. Uh, and the nuances of Obamacare can get a little bit more complicated. Uh, Biden sort of wants to just build off of it. He, and that's really advantageous, a lot more efficient legislatively because there's already a legislative um, uh, sort of just uh, pyramid. It's in the pyramid. The, the base of the pyramid is already built. The nuances just go up and they get tinier and tinier and tinier. And uh, that's where Biden is right now in terms of healthcare. I think that is a huge strong point for Biden. Um, and actually, probably the best thing about his entire campaign is his healthcare plan, uh, which is comp- just, I've never seen anything more misconstrued than his healthcare plan than Joe Bi- like from conservatives. You, you hear conservatives, they say that Joe Biden is socialist in the way that in his healthcare, he talks about, you know, even the moderator asked, and, and I'll play the clip in a second. The moderator, Kristen Welker, asked, so are, do you fear um, that people will characterize your um, plan as socialist? In fact, I mean, you know, and, and said, she basically said, how will you address Americans' quote-unquote legitimate fear of socialized medicine and, government, and a government-run healthcare system? Two things that are very scary and two things that need to be addressed. Joe Biden's plan is not socialized medicine, and it's not a government-run healthcare system, and he made that very, 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 very clear in his answer. Here is the tail end of Kristen Welker's uh, question to Biden, and then 
sort of the meat of Joe Biden's response. What do you say to people who have concerns that your health care plan, which includes a government insurance option, takes the country one step closer to a health care system run entirely by the government? What's I your say it's to ridiculous. It's like saying that, you know, we're uh, the idea that the fact that there's a public option that people can choose that makes it a socialist plan. Look, the difference between the president, I think health care is not a privilege. It's a right. Okay, so that is a really good response. Conservatives often think that healthcare is a commodity or service, uh, which is more than anything really an interesting philosophical debate, which is which could be dedicated an entire episode to having a debate about whether uh, healthcare is a a right or a privilege. Obviously, I think that it is a right more so than a privilege. Although I do understand the argument that conservatives had have when they talk about. Uh, the moral implications of it being a right rather than a privilege and how and that aligns with a, a less government philosophy. However, I think that uh, healthcare is something that is a necessity to live, therefore it is a right. Um, but uh, I don't even think that question has uh, tons of relevance unless you're talking about extremely left or extremely right uh, policies. And uh, it is Joe Biden's response to that saying that that who would think in a world of logic and reason, that a public option, emphasis on option, is a socialized version of medicine. It's just not. It, is, it really is not at all a, um, a socialized option or socialized uh, healthcare policy, but um, it is a thing that should be um, discussed, and it is it's a legitimate question that I suppose people would have, um, but, you know, that's what uh, that's that's how it was handled. That's what Kristen Welker asked, and that's what Joe Biden ended up saying. Healthcare, of course, more than any policy on the planet, is a great place for Trump to default to fear mongering as he always does. And uh, I would say that the theme song of this of Trump's uh, response to what uh, to the entire topic of healthcare in this debate uh, is Rem's "It's the End of the World" song, which is as follows. Okay, so I'm not playing this song because I think it'll be the end of the world if Trump wins, or the end of the world if Biden wins, or Trump will think it's the end of the world if Biden wins, or Biden will think it'll be the end of the world if Trump wins. I am playing it because Trump made it out to be that it really is, that it's going to be the end of the world if Joe Biden wins, especially for your health care and all the benefits that you received from the uh, from the government in terms of health care. I thought that was one of the funniest things in the entire debate, how Trump just, and, and this is not even in health care. Uh, in everything. He just seems like it's going to be the end of the world, just like Fox News all the time. They say it's going to be the end of the world if Joe Biden wins or if a Democrat's in office. Okay, so one of the funniest and greatest lies in the entire debate, in my opinion, was from Trump, where he said this about Joe Biden's health care plan. When he talks about a public option, he's talking about destroying your Medicare Totally destroyed and destroying your social security and this whole country will come down. <laughs> okay, the, three lies right in a row. The country will not come down. He's not going to destroy your Medicare and he's not going to destroy your social security. All the things that he talked about other than the country coming down are socialized policies. If you look at them specifically, they're not good. You can't socialize everything. That would be a disaster. Just like you can't privatize everything. That would be a disaster. Joe Biden's option, if I, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I said this, it is a optional system. You can choose it if you want it, if you don't want it, and you or you can't afford it, that's 
great. And you go with the government and you go with the public option. And if that uh, fear-mongering wasn't enough, here is uh, what Trump had to sneak in with this little one-liner, which he said so confidently. And I just thought his intonation at the end was just amazingly uh, just cocky. Here, Here's what he had to say. He snuck this little one-liner in, um, which is a similar sentiment, but different topic. They said or the stock market will boom if I'm elected. If he's elected, the stock market will crash. Okay. Let's- <laughs> just the tone that he has in that. If he's elected, the stock market will crash. He, he loves his, uh, his cockiness, and I thought that that clip was very indicative of the way he's campaigning right now. Also, somewhere in the middle of uh, this, tr- this Trump debacle, he snuck in a little compliment to Kristen Welker, something that he rarely does to the media, something that I thought was very interesting. So far, I respect very much the way you're handling this, I have to say. By the way- so that's obviously a pre-planned move, uh, although it was sort of strategic because you never see Trump complimenting the media, and uh, I thought that was smart. Um, one of the funniest things, though, in pretty like immediately before the debate, it wasn't immediate as in the same day, but a couple of days before the debate, Trump criticized Kristen Welker for being a Democrat hack and then praised her on the stage for doing such a good job. Here's Trump uh, at a rally or some sort of gathering saying that uh, Trump uh, that Kristen Welker is a Democrat hack in his words. Kristen Welker, she's a radical Democrat, but I've known her. She's been screaming questions at me for a long time. And uh, she's no good. <laughs> okay, so he says that despite her, him once congratulating her on uh, her appointment to uh, her weekend role and uh, weekend anchor role at Today. Congratulations on your show. Thank you very much. They made a very wise decision. Thank you very much for the invite. A very wise decision. Okay, in his words, literally putting a Democrat hack in, in, in a primetime, sh- or not a primetime show, but a morning TV show that th- hundreds of thousands of people watch. That's a pro- I mean. You got to pick one. Is she a Democrat hack, or is it a good decision to put her in uh, as uh, the weekend anchor at today? I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And one more piece of evidence to Trump's hypocrisy. The other topic that was discussed, uh, another topic that was discussed, was immigration. Uh, this was an interesting debate. Trump's whole, and it really nothing changed. Again, this is an, another topic that uh, didn't really get much coverage uh, in the entire debate, um, or di- didn't get much Sorry, there were not as many developments that arised in this topic. There was uh, very little attention focused on this debate. Trump's whole argument is that um, to, Trump's whole argument to the American public and to Biden is that uh, he and Obama built cages for children. Biden's whole argument to Trump was that you separated children from their parents at the border. So, which one are you going to pick? That's worse. And going off of each of their arguments for the American public, it's a very hard choice to make. Immigration is a very sensitive topic. And the the frame of that question, picking which one is worse based off of their past track records, is a horrible thing to have to do. And it's not it's it's really not good. And unfortunately, not not the content of the question itself, but the frame with which it's presented, which one do you hate less? That seems to be almost a mantra of this presidential race, and that's really sad. It's not which one do you like which candidate do you like more? It's which one do you hate less? And I think a lot of people uh, are voting for Biden because they hate him less than they do Trump, or they don't like him, they, they like him more than they do Trump. But it's not that they like them because he, they like Joe Biden for the most part, and, and except for the moderate Democrats and some of the moderate people just generally that do like Joe Biden and the policies he pushes. Um, but a lot of people who were Bernie Sanders supporters, Elizabeth Warren supporters, they're voting for Biden because they don't like Trump. They're not voting for Biden for Biden. 
but nonetheless a very sensitive topic uh, that requires a lot of policy reform no matter which side of the aisle you're on. And I encourage you to read the detailed immigration plans that both campaigns have put out and really look into the, the policies that each, not, not only the track records, which are equally as important, but the current policies that each of these candidates are proposing. Make sure you like read the policies that they put out on their site and read it from the primary source and not you know a CNN or a Fox News who will tint it in whatever direction they, they want uh, to see it in. Read the policy and get the facts first. It's very important, especially on a topic uh, such as immigration. The next topic of the debate was race in America. And this is a very hard question, of course, for Biden and Trump to answer because, uh, you know, at most they've only been witness to historical and present acts of racism. They've never actually experienced discrimination themselves, either historically or in the present, because they are both white men. They are just talking about race as if, you know, they're, they're trying to advocate on other people's behalves and they don't know they don't know from experience from themselves uh any you know particular forms of racism they can educate themselves but that is not of course anything near uh, having the experience of actually being discriminated against so it's a little bit awkward f to see two white men d discussing race when a person of color who's a woman moderator asking them the question i just thought that was from the optics of that it looked a little bit interesting um, Joe Biden had, in my opinion, a perfect response to this question, let alone that it was uh, pre-written, pre-responded, which is, of course, no, no criticism there for, for either Trump or Biden. Um, but uh, I think Biden's response to this entire uh, issue is something that I think can be applied to many American things today and, and really and many American uh, pieces of history, that collectively Americans have never fully lived up to the values established in the Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence. I actually wrote an entire paper in my history class, and the thesis of that paper was, America is a land of potential that, despite its core mission of peace, prosperity, and equality, has struggled to live up to its values, as evidenced by its morbid history and present challenges. It is not that America uh, is some exceptionalist nation that has always you know, promoted uh, the uh, prosperity of every single person that lives in it because that's just not true, but it's also not saying that America is rotten to the core in every single way, because that's also not true. On the issue of race specifically, Joe Biden said something very, very similar. We have always said, we've never lived up to it, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal, but guess what? We have never, ever lived up to it, but we've always constantly been moving the needle further and further to inclusion, not exclusion. This is the first president to come along and says, that's the end of that. We're not going to do that anymore. We have to provide for economic opportunity, better education, better health care, better access to schooling, better access to opportunity to borrow money to start businesses. All the things we can do, and I've laid out a clear plan as to how to do those things. Okay, so that is something that actually probably would be considered pretty uh conservative these days because the left has moved so left, even though that's a Democrat saying that. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would think a conservative is saying that because a lot of conservative uh, thinkers say that America has great values, but they have never fully lived up to them. That's what Joe Biden said, and it's a very true thing. It's a good way to look at history, and it's a good way to really identify the, the lack of parallels in many cases uh, between the Constitution and the actual ways that the values have supposedly come to fruition. Um, for Trump, on the other hand, the first thing that he said about Biden was that in 1994, Biden called uh, black people, quote-unquote, super predators. According to Snopes, the Internet's, uh, quote-unquote, definitive fact-checking resources, uh, resource, sorry, Trump's claim is mostly false. According to Snopes, uh, uh, 
this fact-checking website, um, Trump said, or what's true about that statement is that uh, while speaking in the Senate in 1993 in favor of the Violent Co uh, Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, uh, Biden referred to young people who have become criminals as quote-unquote predators. But what's false about that statement is that Biden did actually not use the term super predator, uh, nor did he specifically refer to black people. He sort of, Trump confused uh, his statements with uh, his former opponent, who seems to just not even, that <laughs> the fact that she's uh, his former opponent, Hillary Clinton, uh, doesn't even seem to cross his mind because he's still attacking Hillary on this campaign trail, which is pretty interesting. But uh, what is true about this, uh, what's false about his statement, but true in reality, is that Hillary Clinton, who, while speaking about uh, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, the same one that was referenced uh, a few years later, referred to young gang members as super predators. So uh, that that claim, I, I was they, they call it mostly false, but I would say that it is false because Biden never used the term super predators and he wasn't talking about black people. So uh, that's just not true. Um, uh, perhaps this tomfoolery, the following tomfoolery sums up Trump's response uh, <laughs> to what he said about race. I mean, this this was I just thought this was absolutely ridiculous. The fact that he said this on the debate. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. Raw foolishness, that is just not true. I mean, you could name uh, probably a dozen presidents that have done more uh, vocally and policy-wise than, uh, you know, Trump uh, in many, many ways. I mean, the Washington Post says that that's completely true. Um, I would say that next to Abraham Lincoln, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president after Kennedy, did a lot more with the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, saying that it's a possible exception, the man who ended slavery, and it's like actually enslaving in the humans, that he's done possibly more than him, or uh, possibly less, like he said, with a possible exception. I mean, that is just really, really insane. According to the Washington Post, he gets four Pinocchios on their uh, rating scale of lies. <laughs> So, um, uh, yeah, that, I mean, th I just thought that was one of the most foolish moments in the entire debate. If we go through the facts here, according to the Washington Post, Lincoln, of course, freed the slaves in the, Confeder in the Confederacy via the Emancipation Proclamation and pressed for passage of constitutional amendments to give them equal status under the law, and it's very hard to chop those achievements. But the, this is, again, I'm reading from the Washington Post's uh, analysis of things. But the claim that Trump has exceeded every other president since Lincoln earned only derision from prominent historians, and I would hope and think from uh, people across the aisle politically. Instead, they said that Lyndon B. Johnson, who signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, is clearly the president who had the most lasting impact on the lives of African Americans. These legislative victories were not easy, requiring Johnson to build coalitions with Republicans and liberal Democrats to defeat the powerful segregationists in his own party who dominated the South. If you want, like, that is something uh, historically that's really interesting in politics, how Johnson was brought on to Kennedy uh, Kennedy's campaign as vice president because uh, he because Kennedy needed to win the South, even though they didn't really agree on much. And that's sort of a parallel between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, except not anything to do with the South. It's just that they disagree on a lot, and she was brought on uh, particularly to win women and women votes. Um, 
you know, and so that happens in politics all the time. People, you know, including myself, I was confused. Why, why on earth did Joe Biden pick Kamala Harris uh, for to be the vice president uh, or the, the running mate for Joe Biden? She disagrees with him on health care policy. She disagrees with the legalization of marijuana. She disagrees with a lot of other policies. She called him, I think, pretty close. She, she alleged that he was uh, a racist person in the actual debates in the primary debates, and they disagree on dozens of policies. So why did she bring her on? Or why did he bring her on? Uh, and it's very similar to the reality that uh, LBJ and uh, JFK had when they were when LBJ was chosen to be JFK's vice president. Perhaps those two are the only uh, <laughs> useful or worthwhile acronyms in the history of government. Uh, here's yet again another uh, bit of uh, the debate's ridiculous exchange with uh, just everything to do with this nonsense that Trump has promulgated. Here's uh, Biden. He says to the, about the poor boys, last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Come on. This guy has a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. Oh, wow. That analogy was fantastic. Uh, but he actually, I mean, again, they... The, the, the amount of lies in this debate, whether it's it's minuscule, like Joe Biden calling the Proud Boys the Poor Boys and saying and misquoting Trump. I think Trump said, not that this matters because it doesn't really change the meaning of anything, but uh, I think Trump said, uh, stand by and stand down or something like, yeah, stand by and stand down. And then Joe Biden said uh, something, what did, what did he say here? We'll play the clip again. He says to the, about the Poor Boys, last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Stand down and stand ready. Okay. I mean, really. Just the fact that Trump said that in the first place, that Biden's misquoting him, that Trump says that he's done more for uh, black Americans since Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that just the insanity of these exchanges is really, really, really ridiculous. Here's the we'll we'll, we'll play the entire 35 second clip of that little exchange uh, going off of uh, of starting with Biden. And I think Trump comes in at the end or maybe not. He says to the about the poor boys last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Come on. This guy has a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. President Trump, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to respond, and then I have a follow-up. You know, he made a reference to Abraham Lincoln. Where did that come in? I mean, you said you're Abraham that, Lincoln. No, no, where did that? No, no. You said, I said not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody right. done what I've done for the black community. And I'm saying, I didn't say I'm Abraham Lincoln. I said <laughs> not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody done what I've done for the black community. Okay, so the two things I learned from that is, uh, number one, Donald Trump needs to seriously reread everything that he knows about history, if anything, and Joe Biden uh, also needs to get hearing aids or at least something that can help him uh, hear the president better. At the end of the segment, uh, there was a long exchange about policy between Trump, and Trump was upset that Biden didn't do what he's now promising, or what, what uh, Biden is now promising in the eight years of his vice presidency. Uh, Biden's argument is that we started it. But because Democrats didn't win the White House in 2016, they weren't able to finish it. Then it finally came down to this moment of very, very awkward silence in the entire debate. Here is the very, very, I almost thought this was like a joke when I saw it, when uh, the very, very awkward moment of silence about Joe Biden conceding that it was because of Republican Congress that they weren't able to pass the aforementioned legislation. All right, Vice President because Biden, and then we're going to move on to the next section. We had a Republican Congress. That's the answer. Well, you got okay. to talk, talk him into it, Joe. Sometimes All right. you got to talk him into it. We're going to move on to our next yeah. section. Like oh, the, high, the famous high voice of, of Trump. 
three three or four seconds of just raw silence, and he said that's the answer. And Kristen Welker didn't wasn't really sure whether or not he was taking a long pause or he fell asleep or <laughs> he was going to continue talking. I thought that was pretty interesting. The final topic of the debate was climate change. We'll do a speed round here. Here's what Trump had to say on the issue of climate change. We have done an incredible job environmentally. We have the cleanest air, the cleanest water, and the best carbon emission standards that we've seen in many, many years. Okay, the first two are complete lies. The the third two are debatable. The U.S. actually ranks 16th in air quality, uh, according to the Environmental Performance Index, which is a joint project from Yale and Columbia Universities. And that that project ranks countries by a variety of environmental indicators. If you want to go to it, you can go to the website uh, that I have, j-story.com slash jdpodcast. Get the show notes. And uh, if you go to, um, if you want to go to the specific link, uh, you can click on, uh, you can go to the show notes and click on that. And if you turn to page 50, you'll see the statistic that I am citing. Uh, where uh, the U.S. ranks 16th in air quality. Even worse and uh, less true. Oh, and actually, sorry, the specific direct hyperlink is j-dorty.com slash EPI20, which stands for Environmental Performance Index 20 for the year 20. So j-dorty.com slash EPI20. You not only see that the U.S. ranks 16th in air quality on page 50, but you also see that the United States ranks 26th in the sanitation and drinking category of that same report, of which Clump, oh, sorry, of which Trump contradicted, not Clump contradicted, I meant Trump contradicted. Uh, and again, you can see that report at j-dorty.com slash EPI20. Continuing on with our speed round about climate change, here is what Joe Biden had to say. Climate change and climate warming, the global warming is an existential threat to humanity. We have a moral obligation to deal with it. And we're told by all the leading scientists in the world, we don't have much time. We're going to pass the point of no return within the next eight to 10 years. Here's where we have a great opportunity. I was able to get both all the environmental organizations as well as labor, the people worried about jobs, to support my climate plan. Because what it does, it will create millions of new good paying jobs. Okay, so, you know, he talks about basically, he's making the argument that, um, my again, this is where Joe Biden comes in very strong. He's in the middle. He's in the middle of everyone. The the super far left with the Green New Deal, seventy percent taxes, putting you know ending the coal industry, the natural gas industry, putting tens of millions of people out of jobs. That's really ridiculous, completely insane, never going to work. Joe Biden says we need to take a balance. We're going to take this very, this issue very seriously. We're going to uh, do it strategically. We're going to look at what the environmentalists say, what the climate change scientists say. We're going to be uh, actual, you know, actually sane in the way we deal with this issue. Unlike Trump, who, yeah, he's cited uh, incomplete and misleading information about uh, the achievements that he's made in air quality and, and et cetera. Uh, but he, you know, he said, and it's been documented that he does not take climate and uh, global warming as serious as Joe Biden does. Fracking uh, uh, is also an interesting issue that was initially brought up in the vice presidential debate for whatever reason. It was sort of a weird uh, issue that had never been brought up before, Um, and it's now been brought back up. Uh, Sometimes Biden says that he likes fracking. Sometimes he doesn't. He's very inconsistent on that. It's a big weakness for the campaign. CNN's uh, Holmes Librand, and I'm using CNN as a source because they had the interview with Biden, and that's the only reason, uh, is because um, in, in two Democratic primary debates, 
Biden, this is what uh, the CNN reporter says. He said that in two Democratic primary debates, Biden made confusing remarks over fracking that would make his campaign, that uh, his campaign had to clarify. In 2019, Biden said that he would, quote unquote, make sure that it's eliminated, referring to fracking when asked about the future of coal and fracking. And then in 2020, he said that he opposed new fracking. Biden's written plan, conversely, never included a full ban on fracking or even new fracking. Rather, it proposes, quote-unquote, banning new oil and gas permitting on public lands and waters, end quote, not ending all new fracking anywhere or ending all existing fracking on public lands and waters. So, really, you look at this politically, the entire thing is uh, a political stance. It's it, his answer to the questions varies on how left the state that he goes to is, or and, you know where he he is in the country. And part of the reason watching the debate, another reason that watching the debate is interesting, is because it gives a complete national perspective on the issue. And uh, you, you can see how Joe Biden would respond to this, not only on a state by state level, but to the entire nation. Biden also created confusion about this stance when, uh, with some of his comments during the Democratic primary, according to CNN. For example, he had this exchange with CNN's Dana Bash, and I'll just read it here. Dana Bash says, Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Just to clarify, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? Biden then said, No, we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated, and no more subsidies for either one of those, either any fossil fuel. And then, afterwards, Biden's campaign followed up clarifying that he, quote-unquote, supports eliminating subsidies for coal and gas and deploying uh, carbon capture, end quote. And then Biden also said that he was against new fracking in a Democratic primary debate in March when he challenged when he was challenged by Bernie Sanders on the issue of climate change. Then, after that, his campaign clarified to reporters that same evening that Biden was reiterating his plan to ban oil and gas permits on public land and not a complete ban on new fracking, which a president cannot do. Without an act of Congress, the president uh, could not issue an outright ban on fracking across the U.S. And again, this is from CNN. There are, however, a number of regulatory and executive actions an administration could take to prevent or shrink the use of fracking technology, particularly on federal land. Uh, And again, from CNN, the problem is that most fracking takes place on private land and any attempts to limit it would likely face legal challenges. And I think likely is an understatement. Rich companies love to frack. Um... And they would definitely, uh, they would definitely uh, oppose any government intervention on that. So I don't know. It's it's just uh, fracking is such a uh, sort of obscure issue to the general public of America that I thought it's interesting how much back and forth <laughs> Biden's campaign has had on this issue. And you can read the back and forth uh, from that CNN article and Joe Biden's actual climate plan at j-dorty.com/jdpodcast. The final question of the entire debate was on the topic of leadership. Kristen Welker said, what will you say to Americans who did not vote for you? First uh, response said that uh, Trump, uh, Trump said that uh, success is going to bring us all together. And then he proceeded to just immediately attack Biden in his remaining and final moments on the debate where he just fear mongers <laughs> the public into voting for him. Here's once again. Trump saying that success is going to bring us together and that uh, insisting on the need to just fearmonger uh, the general public about what the uh, Biden administration is going to look like. Success is going to bring us together. 
We are on the road to success, but I'm cutting taxes and he wants to raise everybody's taxes and he wants to put new regulations on everything. He will kill it. If he gets in, you will have a depression, the likes of which you've never seen. Your 401ks will go to hell and it'll be a very, very sad day for this country. Fearmonger much? Never heard. Okay, so that was just, he said your 401ks are gone. Everything you like is gone. He in another rally that he had, he said that all holidays will be gone. I mean, he's he's gone nuts. He's saying that everything is going to be gone if Joe Biden gets in. He said that there's going to be a depression. He's going to, you know, he's basically saying that it's going to be all doom and gloom if Joe Biden happens to be elected. By contrast, Biden was asked the exact same question. What will you say to Americans who did not vote for you? And of course, Joe Biden, and of course, Trump didn't even answer that question. And uh, Joe Biden gave a longer speech, uh, but I cut out of some of his talking points to really just address the variety in his speech. So here's sort of an edited answer to uh, get rid of the rambling in his speech. Here it is. I will say I'm an American president. I represent all of you, whether you voted for me or against me. And I'm going to make sure that you're represented. I'm going to give you hope. We're going to move. We're going to choose science over fiction. We're going to choose hope over fear. We're going to choose to move forward because we have enormous opportunities. What is on the ballot here is the character of this country. Decency, honor, respect, treating people with dignity, making sure that everyone has an even chance. And I'm going to make sure you get that. You haven't been getting it the last four years. Okay. Now, that is, I think, I would hope that most rational humans would agree that uh, he didn't even make one attack on Trump in that speech. Now, maybe that's not smart politically. I don't think it, I think that tends, I mean, I get a better vibe from Biden in that response than Trump saying that his opponent's just going to destroy the world. Like, I think Biden's response is just a lot better in uh, almost every single way, and I'd hope everyone would agree with that uh, as well. So, uh, that was pretty much the entire debate. Uh, and I think if you, Want to go out and make your decision after listening to this podcast? I'd highly recommend it. I also recommend that you check out more liberal sources than me, and I or more liberal commentators than me, uh, more conservative commentators than me, so you can really get a balanced view of what you're looking at. This is just my opinions, uh, and there are other opinions that are equal, more you know they're equally valid as mine. So I highly recommend you you check out a variety of sources before you make your decision. Uh, but I would say that based off of this debate, that's sort of a good indicator of who you should vote for. Um, the other thing that I wasn't really even worth mentioning, and it was predicted that it was going to be a big talking point of the entire debate, is that, um, you know, the candidates' mics were muted when the, uh, when their opponent was not talking, and that was going to be, that was supposedly going to be something that was going to be huge. I thought it was going to be huge. I thought Trump is going to be screaming while Joe Biden is talking. He's going to interrupt the entire time. Didn't actually happen. The only time that, ironically, the only time that I heard, uh, the mics being muted was when, uh, Joe Biden was trying, I think it was twice, when Joe Biden was trying to talk, um, and they, the, his mic was muted for a second, but it was, it was called on him, they were just a little bit late, and there were other times where it, it seemed like the mics were supposed to be muted, but they actually weren't. Throughout the debate, Trump interrupted 50 times, uh, the moderator, Kristen Welker, and, uh, Biden interrupted, uh, Kristen Welker 37 times. So... That's sort of interesting. Uh, the number of times that the moderator had to interrupt the candidate, Kristen Welker only had to interrupt Joe Biden five times, but she had to interrupt Trump 48 times. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'm very against, actually. I know liberals think that uh, it's probably, generally they tend to think that uh, it's better when the mics are muted because Trump's a lunatic. But I actually think that it's a good idea to have the mics um, 
unmuted uh, because you really get a raw idea and a raw presence and view of the candidates, not only their values and their and what the, the policy they want to push, but also just their existence, their personality, the, the way they treat people. You know, just day-to-day interactions can tell you a lot about how people view and, uh, you know, interact with other people. So I think it's crucial to have both uh, mics uh, completely uh, unmuted the entire debate because you can really, I mean, what it should come down to is the individual candidates being respectful of each other, unlike they were in the first debate. Um, and it shouldn't be about mics having to be muted. It should just be that, you know, it shouldn't even be an issue. <laughs> they should be completely unmuted the entire time and it should be up to the candidates to demonstrate that they're uh, treating each other well. And more importantly, up to the American public to decide who is worth voting for. I'm 100% thinking and I 100% think that Joe Biden should, you should vote for Joe Biden right now because Trump is... For every reason I talked about in this podcast, for every reason I've talked about in all podcasts before this podcast, Biden is a better option. Pretty much almost almost anyone is better than Trump because he's just destroyed the moral compass of this country uh, and, and the way it's going. He's created an insane amount of division in this country, even if it's not directly from him. There have been, I mean, his rhetoric has just bolstered, bolstered tons of division. I think on policy, there are certain things that you could be argued from a conservative standpoint that he's done very well, that his administration has done very well on, not him. Again, I use his administration and him as very different terms because I don't think Trump knows anything about the policy that his administration pushes, or at least very little, maybe three bullet points at most. Um, but I would strongly endorse Joe Biden for president. I would highly recommend that if you can vote, if you're American and you're of age, then I would highly recommend you vote for Joe Biden. And again, if you want to learn more, I would Again, recommend going out, checking a diversity of sources, both liberal and Democrat, and just make, sorry, both liberal and Democrat and Republican and conservative, and just make sure that you vote if you're eligible. It's incredibly important. This election is extremely important. I always say that every single one. In fact, I get sort of sick of hearing that every time. But it is important that you vote. It's, it's important that you exercise your right. You do your duty as a citizen and go out and vote. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed my breakdown of the final 2020 presidential debate. I hope you uh, use this to inform your decision at the ballot box. And uh, this is actually the final episode that I'm going to do before the presidential election on election night. We're going to have uh, updates on the Jay Doherty podcast and on j-doherty.com and the dohertyfiles.com. So if you do want to go ahead and uh, tune in during election night, we'll have some updates. Not It's not going to be extensive because I'm going to be paying attention to it and I'm the only one that actually has to that can update the site and everything like that I'm the only one this is a one-man band operation here so uh I can't really do much uh in terms of live coverage I'm not going to be streaming everything live because there's going to be a lot of information coming at once uh however I'm going to have a comprehensive breakdown of the election of the election day of how the polls unfolded and how everything went down on election night uh, at some point, either the next day or the day after. It'll be interesting to see if Biden wins, how Trump will react to it, and if Trump wins, how Biden will react to it, because um, Trump has said that he might not accept the results of the election. We'll see exactly how that happens. I hope Joe Biden wins. I All the polls say he's going to win. You never know. You really never know. I don't, I think my prediction, really my prediction, if you stay to the end, you'll get this prediction. I think that uh, uh, Joe Biden will win very, very slightly, very, very slightly. I think Joe Biden will win, uh, and it will not be as distant as the polls are predicting. They, a lot of the national polls say Trump or say Biden has a 10-point lead. No, 
I, I don't think so. I think it'll be extremely close, but I think it will end up being a Biden victory. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. That's, that's what I think right now. Uh, that could be subject to change in the next 48 hours, but it is November 1st. The election day is on November 3rd. Please go vote. I endorse Biden. Take that or leave it. That's what I think you should do. The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive newsletter updates uh, every uh, all the time at uh, j-dorty.com slash newsletter. You can uh, go ahead and read and listen to show notes and episode highlights at j-dorty.com, where also the show notes are listed and everything that you need to know about this episode is hosted. Clips and highlights are also at the dortyfiles.com, sort of more newspaper format where you get credible news with perspective, stay informed with perspective. Um, and um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. This has been a JD Media Network production. The Jay Doherty Podcast is written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions, like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics, or the Weekly File for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archived clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. The Jay Doherty Podcast with TJDP. The JD Media Network.